Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, just your average Bible nerd trying to make his way through the Book of Romans with as much information as I can glean in a school library and a lot of prayer and meditation with God. Uh, It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun to get through every one of these episodes, and today is no exception as we continue into chapter 8 of the Book of Romans. This is one of the most powerful chapters in the Book of Romans, and I invite you guys to come along on this episode where we're going to have a lot of hope about Christians dealing with suffering and how to respond to suffering as a Christian, how Paul sees all the sufferings that the people in Rome are enduring as part of the life of a Christian and the life of Christ. It's going to be good. Come along for the ride. So we're diving straight into the ending section of the book of Romans, and right now we're in chapter 8. Today is going to be interesting because this is the first time in our podcast history where uh, I didn't finish up a chapter um, with the last episode in which we were covering chapter 8. We stopped right in the middle at verse 17. So I had a choice here. I could either uh, reread the section of uh, 17 onwards for today, or I could just tell y'all to go back to the previous episode and uh, listen to that episode where you hear the chapter read. And so I'm going to say we're going to actually read the chapter, uh, the section from 17 onward. I always feel like rereading sections of scripture is always a good thing. So we're going to go ahead and do that. Um, One thing too, I always do kind of a recap here. Um, Since I did a pretty long recap on chapter eight, I will not recap um, chapters one through seven again for this episode. You can go back to um, the previous episode. Uh, episode of the beginning of Romans 8 to listen to that. Instead, I'll kind of recap what we talked about in the last episode um, with everything up to this point. So um, Paul starts out chapter 8 with a therefore that then focuses on everything that came before it from chapters 1 through 7, and he brings together a lot of different ideas that he's been building in um, the previous chapters. You'll remember that he's focused quite a bit on the Jewish and Gentile relationship and how Jews have a very uh, um, loving relationship with the law that was given on Mount Sinai, and Gentiles uh, don't really have that same loving relationship, and as a result, they have been trying to, he's been trying to write out a good um, letter to them that really settles a lot of those differences between the two people groups, and so a lot of these chapters have been focusing in on how um, Paul sees the gospel as a unifying factor to both a Jewish story and a Gentile story. Um, in this chapter, 
chapter, he focuses specifically on the Holy Spirit as the unifying factor for both a Jew and a Gentile. He's focused on Abraham. He's focused on Adam. He's focused on Christ. He's focused on um, how a Gentile lives by their own conscience as a law and a Jew lives by the law of the Torah, Um, all kinds of different uh, focuses. And he even focuses on Romans 7 on the cycle of sin and death that uh, both a Jew and a Gentile go through. Now we're going to focus specifically on the life of a Christian. And uh, whereas most of the chapters before this were focusing in on um, our lives before Jesus came and the Holy Spirit indwelt in us, um, now he's focusing in on the lives after the Holy Spirit has um, dwelt in us. And so last week we talked about how Paul sees living according to the Spirit as a Christian. And so we saw a lot of um, a choice here that he still thinks people have to make. This isn't just a um, carried off by the Spirit, but instead um, he specifically mentions several times in this section how they are to put off the flesh and to instead live by the Spirit. That's something he'll say in Galatians 6 as well. And so there is a responsibility here, a human responsibility to stay or remain within Christianity and not just to leave it, which is a big thing for Paul and also for the book of Hebrews, actually, because a lot of Jews were trying to convince um, Gentiles, actually, to convert to Judaism um, and kind of get away from this radical guy named Paul that's preaching this new cult religion that's kind of different from uh, from Judaism in uh, many radical ways and is very false. Uh, this would be from a Jewish perspective that doesn't believe in Christianity and instead needs to believe the true religion, Judaism, um, and buy into that whole sale. And so a lot of Jews were trying to convince Gentiles of this, um, which is honestly one of the reasons that the book of Hebrews was written, um, was trying to convince a lot of the people in that time period that um, uh, Christianity is actually Judaism itself, and it's just Judaism reworked. And the book of Hebrews is trying to convince people not to leave Christianity for Judaism, but to see Christianity as the continuation of Judaism. As a result of that, um, Paul also is thinking in that kind of same way, and so you'll find a lot throughout this whole section that for him, choosing the way of the flesh is closely tied to choosing the way of the law, um, which is something that he talked about in chapter 7, the chapter right before this. And so this whole section is really meant to explain how um, Christians are to consider themselves now that they believe in Christ and how they are to remain within the faith. We talked about the difference between earning your salvation and remaining within your salvation last episode. That's a really big, important distinction to make make here, and that's the language that Paul will often use. He doesn't ever use the word remain itself, um, but he will use things uh, like put off um, the life of the flesh as if that's something that they still have to do, right? Like they And that they can go back into the realm of the flesh, um, and that... Um, Currently, they are not in that realm, but they could be, um, and that that is something that's a definite possibility. And if they continue to live in the flesh all their life, then they do not have the Spirit of Christ within them. And so that's a big, big thing that he's asking them to really consider, is making sure that they're not just living according to the flesh all their life, because that's just going to end in one 
place for Paul, and that is death, um, whereas um, the Spirit is going to give life. And so he basically sums up a lot of chapter 7 in this opening section, um, telling them at the very end that they have an obligation, and that obligation is not to the flesh, and they are not to live according to the flesh, but instead they are to um, live according to the Spirit and put to death even the misdeeds of the body, right? Um, this idea of um, there's still work for a Christian, like it's not just a grace card that they can just cheat um, from this point forward and just do whatever they want to do. Um, there's a component here is if they go back into the way of the flesh, they will fall away and th that's just going to lead to death. Um, whereas if um, they live according to the Spirit and they let the Spirit with uh, dwell within them, they are actually going to get adopted as sons. Um, uh, that is part of the really incredible thing that we ended this whole section on last week is that when they live by the Spirit and when they are led by the Spirit, um, they are children of God. And we're going to see this week how that works out even further. Um, this idea of them being adopted because they have the Spirit of Jesus within them, and Jesus is God's Son. And so now that we have the Spirit of Jesus within us, we are also considered God's sons. We've been adopted. Um, all of this language is language that also comes up in Galatians. If you want to read Galatians along with this, I highly encourage it because a lot of Galatians makes super a lot of sense reading chapter 8 of the book of Romans. A lot of what um, he says in chapter 8 is just word for word almost copied from Galatians. Um, so there's a lot of things in Galatians that you can read um, that really help with Romans. And so I highly recommend reading that as well. Um, but for the, for the time being, I'll just say very um, short and sweetly um, that his focus here is that when the Spirit dwells within us, we have this new status in which we can actually pray Father to God and get this sense of um uh, relationship with God. This is a very important point, um, is that up until the Spirit indwells in us, um, we can't really reference Him as Father. It's the Spirit indwelling within us that gives us this category in which we can consider God Father. That's what he says in verse 15, a really powerful um, uh, point here. And on top of that, like we're actually then going to be um, unified with Jesus um, and uh given the inheritance that Jesus is going to have. Jesus is going to uh, be given an inheritance of the kings, um, and we'll actually end up being uh, co-heirs with Jesus. And so Jesus isn't just the heir of everything in um, Psalm 2 and in Psalm 110, where God said he's going to put all the nations under his feet and give him all the nations, right? Um, that's not just for Jesus alone, but that's also for our us. We're going to have all of that inheritance along with Jesus because we now are all married to Jesus and having that marriage relationship with Jesus, having Jesus within us, uh, all of these things mean that we what the relationship that Jesus has to God is the same relationship that we now have to God. Um, I say even like this verse here saying that we are co-heirs with Christ and that Christ is in us. All of this language is really, really um, uh it would be in a huge sense offensive to a Jew that's um, has a very sharp distinction between God and humans. Um, and this is a very radical reworking of the Jewish faith in a lot of ways to say that um, we are now going to be co-heirs with Jesus. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And I think we miss a little bit of the, even today, I rarely hear a sermon preached on just that. I think a lot of times people preach a sermon of which we die, we go to heaven, and we just kind of exist in this really nice place for the rest of eternity. Whereas here, the sense is that we are actually an heir 
in the same way that Christ is an heir and that we inherit everything that Christ inherits from his death and that we have to go through the same life that Christ goes through. Um, we have to die in the same way, have the same sufferings that Christ does. And then um, when we resurrect, we then get to enjoy all of the inheritance that God promised Jesus for going through all of that because we also follow the same life that he did. Um, and again, this is not about earning salvation from Jesus or anything of that nature. This is a promise that God made to Jesus, and it's through our faith in him and then remaining within that faith. That's a very big distinction between earning faith and remaining within the faith um, that then gives us that um, inheritance, right? So we're not earning it. We are remaining within that inheritance because of the faith we have in Jesus. Very important point there as well. So all that to say, um, that's kind of the summary of everything we talked about in the previous episode. Going forward, we're going to start with verse 18. Um, but before that, let's go ahead and dive into those verses. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjugated to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no longer hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height 
nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so um, pretty powerful stuff there. Um, We're going to just jump straight into verse 18. He starts with, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's very important here. Um, it, remember again, uh, there, I've talked about this in Romans 5. There's a strand throughout the entirety of the book of Romans that so often gets missed. It's really sad. Um, we get so caught up in the theology of Romans that we miss one of the biggest points of the entire book, which is really to answer the question of, how does a Christian deal with suffering? Um, it's one of the big points throughout the entirety of Paul's letters. Actually, you'll find it almost in every book of his corpus. And uh, it's a big part of the book of Romans in general is one of the things that Paul really believes about Christianity. And one of the reasons he believes it is true even is um, that it's a call to live a life of suffering, but not because we are just putting aside all of our um, uh, desires for things. But instead, it's a call to put aside our sufferings for the fact that there will come a day um, when all of that suffering will go away and there'll be a glory. We talked about the weight of glory before and how glory uh, in many ways represents Jesus's death on the cross. There will be a glory that is revealed in us, right? And so it's a really important point here that Paul will talk about in um, Corinthians 15, actually, about resurrection in particular, how in some sense or form or fashion, a seed has to die when it falls to the ground. And then once it dies, it'll then spring up with new life. And that new life is the thing that then grows and grows and grows and becomes the glory of it. Right. And so in this very similar way, he sees the church in Rome going through certain sufferings that only a church in Rome would go through. Right. Rome was the biggest like, uh, I don't even know the word to describe Rome other than just like, uh, one of the most, um, secular places you could live. It was filled with debauchery and um, all kinds of um, waywardness, and uh, it was uh, reveling in that quite heavily. The Colosseum was there. Um, The uh, emperors up to that point would um, never claim to be God, but after they died, um, the peoples would all gather around and claim that he was God incarnate every time, and um, there was imperial cults cropping up all around where they would worship the emperor. Some emperors would even set up statues and then um, subtly kind of imply that they were a deity in some way. There was just a lot going on in Rome um, that uh, in some way, shape or form uh, was very antithetical to how Christians were to live. And uh, by the time you get to Nero, right, uh, many Christians are um, said to have suffered in the Colosseum because of his um, persecutions. And we're only about, uh, I would say, 10 to 15 years away from that um, when Paul writes this letter. So there's a lot there's a lot of sufferings that they are probably already starting to endure, sufferings from within their own church with the uh, Jewish people um, quite mad at them and uh, being Gentiles in the first place and uh, trying to lop on a lot of um, extra rules and regulations for um, being um, in the faith. And then on top of that, also just how um, how much the outside world is treating them as a no-name and treating them as a very... Um, um, 
honestly like as a cult that needs to be stamped out. And so there's huge, huge uh, theme throughout a lot of Paul's letters of encouraging each church to really remain within the faith and endure that suffering. And here we have no exception. Uh, we have uh, this. There's no exception here where he's focusing specifically on all of these present sufferings that they're enduring um, are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed within them. Right. Um, and then he, he actually gives an example of something that they can see in real life because, and I've always appreciated what Paul does here. Um, he doesn't <laughs> for the, a few times he will like um, talk about how like um, it's just a duty of a Christian to um except that Jesus lived a life that was a life of suffering and that um, we have to kind of live that life too, right? Like there is a sense in which like living the way of Jesus is living the way of suffering, right? Because where does Jesus's um, uh, life climax at? It climaxes at the cross, right? And so that's a big part of his um, life and way of living. And that's a big part of our way and life as well, or should be. Um, but here he actually focuses on something a little different than just Jesus. He's built that up and has talked about that argument quite a bit. And so for this, for this example, he decides to look in a different direction and he focuses actually on nature and creation and, um, specifically all of the creation he's now going to use in his, as an example for this people to see that they are not alone in their sufferings, which is one of my favorite parts of the book of, or of chapter eight. He says, for creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So his idea here is that creation is an actual living, breathing thing. And he personifies it, right? He just, he makes it a person and it's actually a person that's um, eagerly expecting um, the children of God to be revealed. We know from uh, the last time we had a podcast um, that the children of God are, if you said us that are Christians, you are right, right? Um, and creation is waiting for us to be revealed. And that is meaning waiting for us all to die and then get resurrected and to be um, shown to have the air um, to be co-heirs with Christ. That's what he just talked about. So it's this idea that creation itself is waiting in eager expectation for that day when we are all to inherit everything that Jesus inherits and we get to be glorified, right? Um, that's the idea of Christians getting glorified. That That is what that is, is creation is waiting for us all to be co-heirs with Christ Jesus, that ending part of last week's episode, right? Um Creation itself, he says, is subjected to frustration, Um, meaning that just as much as we're suffering and have frustration for this life going on right now, we can also look at the world around us and see that the world around us is just as frustrated. It's just as subjected to frustration. It's just as bound as um, anything that we may feel like we're bound in our lives currently as we're suffering through oppression. Um, it, it, it shares the same uh, story as us in a way. And it's not by its own choice, right? Same as what these Christians in Rome would be dealing with. is not by their choice that they're suffering. Kind of in a sense it is, but in a way it isn't, right? Like nobody chooses to suffer. Um, it's forced upon us by other people that want to oppress, right? And in the same way, creation didn't choose to suffer. Um, it is just bound by it because of actually Adam and because of Adam's sin, right? But by the will of the one who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This is a really interesting verse because there's been a lot of debates about who is the one who subjected it, right? Is that Adam? It doesn't seem to be the case because um, it doesn't, it kind of implies that there's a sense in which Adam would have way more foreknowledge of things than he did when he sinned in the Garden of Eden. Instead, I would say that this is probably God. Um, this is God subjecting creation to the same story of um, frustration and suffering as um, uh, we undergo. And it is why you will see death in animals. It's why you'll see death basically existing in all of uh, creation. And uh, God's purpose for doing this um, for all of creation is um, a hope. And it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So this idea here is a uh, really interesting that like God of his own nature decided to subject creation to the same story that humans brought upon themselves in the garden of Eden. And by subjecting them to, um, the same, um, frustration and the same, um, bondage to death, right. Um, by subjecting it to that, um, there is a hope that one day it will it itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Right. So like once we're resurrected and we have um, this freedom and glory that God has given us because we've been resurrected. The cool thing about our jobs from that point forward is actually bringing that same freedom to creation. Um, and that's the hope. Right. Is that like And this is where I get this sense of like um, the restoration that's going to happen afterwards is probably going to be a progressive restoration, not just like everything's fixed all at once kind of uh, restoration. Um, It seems to be that Paul is in some way, shape or form is implying um, that there is in some sense uh, creation being brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God, having us have some kind of role in that kind of progress of creation being um, renewed, right? I don't know how that works out. You can theorize about that all day long. I'm just putting that as a thought. Um, Don't take that as how I actually read this. Um, I just want you guys to really pay attention to the way that Paul words this here. Um, Like I said, this isn't something for you to go and like fight over as like, oh, Noah said this and this is how he thinks about it or whatever. It's just one of those things that like the way that he subtly words this um, is not just um, about um, us dying and then suddenly uh, humans are all good, right? It does seem as if like we have a relationship with creation itself after we're brought into the freedom and glory of being children of God that then plays a part in creation being restored. How that happens, whether or not we just uh, creation's brought to us and it just happens instantaneously at the snap of your fingers. Maybe so. Maybe that's a process. I don't know. Um, Paul doesn't say here. And so we're only left to speculate how it is exactly that creation is brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God, whatever that might look like. Um, it might be as simple as him, him just using the category of freedom and glory of the children of God to just mean that how humans are being freed and being glorified is the same as 
um, the uh, creation will be. Um, and that's how many people have interpreted this. But I think it's I think it's always wise to think of every possibility um, that Paul may mean here before making a decision on that front. Um, and I just wanted to leave that option open for you because it's a really powerful and beautiful image overall. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So we already got some timeline stuff here, right? He's talking about present time. So currently as he's writing this letter, creation is groaning, right? It's in the pains of childbirth. Not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the spirit. I've talked about first fruits before. That's an Old Testament idea of the idea of agricultural farming and how there were always some first fruits of the farming crop that would show up before the rest of the harvest would come in. And those were always a good indication of how good your harvest was going to be, was how the first fruits acted, right? Um, This gets used quite a bit in the New Testament to reference um, Jesus being the first fruit of resurrection. Um, He's the first person to get resurrected, and then everybody will get resurrected after him later on. Um, And here um, he talks about it in relationship to the Holy Spirit, how we are um, the first fruits of the spirit. The spirit is um, the first. I guess I'll say it this way. We are the first people to have the Holy Spirit indwell in. We're the first fruits of the spirit. The implication here is that the Holy Spirit will then soon to indwell all of creation. I'm assuming if we're the first fruits, then what does that make the rest of the harvest of Um, the Holy Spirit indwelling. And I think in a huge way, that would be the Holy Spirit filling all of creation with life and renewing um, the all of creation that was subject to death right now is filled with life. That's my assumption here. We'll see if he goes forward with that. Um, But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Now, what's really interesting here um, is he says earlier that the Spirit has brought about our adoption to sonship, but then here he says that our adoption to sonship is something that we're waiting for eagerly. And this is something that I've talked about a lot with Paul, is Paul has a very uh, nuanced category of both Jesus and the Holy Spirit and how they both operate in the present time and in the future. And he sees it in both an already but a not yet kind of way. Um, We're already adopted as sons. Um, through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but we're also not really yet because we haven't had resurrection happen yet. We haven't had a lot of things happen yet that have restored us to our glory um, that we had before the fall. And so as a result, like he still sees that as something to talk about, as something we were waiting for eagerly, as something as to our adoption. So it's really important to mention that just because Paul will say, Um, for instance, you are saved, doesn't mean that you won't get saved in the future, right? Um, That's something that I've talked about a lot with Romans 2, right? Uh, Romans 2 is a category in which we introduce the idea that there is a judgment that's going to come, and we need to be saved from that judgment. Um, That's something that he talks about in Romans 2. But that doesn't nullify the fact that we have been saved right now. Same thing here with our adoption of sonship. We are adopted as sons now, um, in the sense, if you can go back to uh, verse 15, where he says that the Spirit brings about our adoption of sonship, but at the same time, we're also not 
adopted as sons until the very end when we're resurrected because we're waiting eagerly for it. And that's what he says in verse 23. That's not a contradiction. That's just um, in many ways, there are times in Paul where he will just see this kind of split between the already and the not yet. And he will see part of it getting satisfied now, really much in the same way as first fruits. First fruits is actually the best metaphor of this, um, where you have the first fruits of the spirit um, that bring about some things. And then eventually you'll have the full harvest of the spirit bringing about the rest of the the um, uh, way that that crop harvest will be. That's actually the perfect analogy, and that's the analogy that he uses. The redemption of our bodies is his last um, clause here, basically just saying that the adoption to sonship happens at our resurrection, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. So here's what's really interesting. Before, he used to say that we were saved through faith, and I still think that's true, but in this hope, we're also saved. And you'll notice that hope and faith um, are often used interchangeably. Faith is often used to talk about Jesus's um, uh, things that he did in the past, right? So his death on the cross, his resurrection, and we believe in those things having happened in the past, and we put our trust in him that the way that he lived was the way of uh, living that then results in resurrection, right? So it's his um, life or way of living that we must submit to and live under f- and have faith in to then have those things occur within us, right? That's one way to think of it, right, is through the lens of the past. And that's kind of how he's focused on most of these previous chapters of the book of Romans. Hope, however, is about the future, And hope focuses in on what has not already happened. And so when it comes to hope, what we hope in is we hope that what happened to Jesus uh, with his resurrection also happens with us. And so he talks about that as the thing we hope for, right? In this hope, we were saved, right? We were hoping in resurrection, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. And that's very straightforward, very pragmatic, right? (laughs) If you get to see... um, your own body get resurrected um, in the future, like if you were able to have a time machine and travel into the future and you got to see yourself resurrected after you died, um, then you went back in time and decided to live out the rest of your life, you would no longer have hope in resurrection because you know it's going to happen because you saw the future, right? Um, there, Once you know that something is going to happen, um, you no longer have hope in it. Um, and this is a big point that I think uh, a lot of people miss that are like philosophers and things about Christianity is there's an element here in Christianity in which God doesn't really want you to know for certain every part of the faith, because if that were to happen, you wouldn't have hope anymore. Um, and hope is a very important part to living as a Christian. He wants you to have hope. He wants you to not necessarily be certain. And so this idea of you um being the type of Christian that has no doubt whatsoever um, is actually not a good thing because a Christian that has no doubt whatsoever in resurrection um, has no hope in resurrection. You only have hope if you have doubt. And that's a very important thing that I think a lot of people miss is it's the doubt that in small amounts, not in large amounts, but in small amounts is actually the creator of of hope because that small amount of doubt is telling you, I'm not actually certain about this, right? Um, People that are absolutely 100% certain of something don't hope in it. They just 
believe, you know, they just know it to be true. Right. And it's a really important point that I want to make, uh, bring up because a lot of people feel uh, guilty that they have doubt. And here we actually see that for Paul, at least, um, there's actually something that good about doubt that can actually bring in this beauty of a choice of hope. Um, this is something that I love about um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the movies. Um, one of the big moments in the entire series is the third movie where um, Theoden is actually called to um, save Gondor from hordes and hordes of orcs that are just overwhelming it. And he only has 6,000 men. And he realizes pretty quickly that if he takes his 6,000 men and tries to save Gondor from all of these hordes and hordes of orcs, he's going to die. Everybody's going to die. Um, and he realizes within that moment that he has a choice whether or not to sacrifice his 6,000 men or stay home and let Gondor figure it out on their own. And it's a big moment in the story because up until that point, Gondor has not had a really good relationship with um, Rohan. They've not come and helped them in any of their plights. The whole second movie is about them suffering under um, orcs and being attacked by orcs and Gondor sends no one to rescue them. And so it's a big open question. Is Theoden actually going to do this? Is he going to sacrifice 6,000 men? And he does. And one of the things that's so powerful about um, his choice to help Gondor is that he has a hope in people outside of himself to fix the situation. And while he very much has the cynicism of his own life and his own people probably going to their deaths, as a matter of fact, when they actually charge the orcs, they scream out as a, a chant death, like they're riding to their deaths, basically. Um, and so there's not a lot of not a lot of hope there. But the very fact that he chose to go right means that there was some small bit of hope within him. There was something there that made him decide to fight as opposed to not fight. Um, and it's a big theme of the entire trilogy of movies is um, focusing in specifically on humans and why they decide against all odds to uh, fight for things they believe in. Um, it's a line that actually comes up in two towers when, um, uh, uh, Frodo asks Sam, what are they holding on to? What's the good thing um, that they should be fighting for, basically? And um, Sam says, I think it's exactly that. I think it is the fact that there is some good in this world that's worth fighting for. And that's what we hope in is this goodness that just exists in people, in places, in nature that we should just fight for. Um, and that is the hope that they put themselves in. It's a little different in the Bible, right? Because we put our hope not in just some innate sense of goodness in people and in the world, but we actually name that innate sense of goodness as God. Um, and we actually say that that um, innate sense of goodness became a human named Jesus. But it's the same principle, right? It's this idea of having a hope in something outside of yourselves um, that makes you do things that you normally would not do, it makes you choose the life of the spirit as opposed to choosing the life of the flesh. That's the part I didn't talk about with um, last week's episode of going through the Holy Spirit is a lot, a huge part of choosing the spirit over choosing the flesh is choosing hope over despair, um, choosing um, to hope in something outside of yourself that is God, I say, um, as opposed to 
um, choosing your own understanding of the way things are, choosing your own cynicism, choosing your own um, depression, choosing your own uh, fears and anxieties, um, choosing something outside of yourself that defines the world and says that the world's not just going to fall into utter chaos and disarray and that you're going to die and be wiped off the map and never be seen or heard from again, never have another thought in your head, never understand anything ever again, never be able to see another person ever again or talk with another person again, never get to eat pizza again, whatever it may be, right? Like to have that kind of sense of, um, I guess I'll call it, um, fragile cynicism, uh, where you just walk around looking at your life as just a short period of life where it's just 70 years of living and then that's it. Right. Um, uh, it seems to me that like living that way, the only response is if you believe that is to live according to your flesh, live according to your own desires. Even Paul will say that in Corinthians, if the resurrection didn't happen, then eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that's a really important point is that like living according to the flesh, it makes sense if you don't believe in some God that then comes in human form and fixes the mess of creation and fixes your life in a way that demands that you have to live in a similar way to him, right? Um, that is that is the big claim of Christianity at the end of the day, is that there is an answer. It's just a very narrow gate, <laughs> um, and there are few that walk through that gate. And that's the, that's the hard part about the whole claim, um, is that that narrow gate is narrow because it's a gate of suffering. It's a gate that's filled with um, making choices against your own flesh and making choices um, of the spirit, right? That is Paul's big point here. But like I said, he doesn't just see that as all negative because at the end of the day, there's a hope that all of those hard choices, all of those choices of um, walking the narrow way, all of those dying to our fleshly desires, right? Like all of that is going to end in a way that's going to provide so much for us. That's going to give us an inheritance. We're going to actually get things. It's not just that you're demanded to sell everything and that's what gets you the golden ticket into heaven. Um, it's that you're demanded to sell everything and then you get a pearl of great value that's so highly valued it's the most valued thing in the world right and that is the big important point is something i think we miss a lot is not just that you're uh, you're just being good for the sake of being good you're being good for a reward like you know paul is very very specific about that like you're going through all of this suffering not just because you have to but because you will get a reward. This is stuff that I think that John Piper actually misses a lot about his own understanding of a lot of these different passages is he sees death to self a lot of the times as just dying to every desire and becoming almost a stoic in a sense of like never wanting anything or never having any desires for anything. And that's not what I see Paul saying here is he does see us having an inheritance, being co-heirs with Jesus, having some part to take in Christ's glory, actually. It's not just something that we um, let him have all the glory and we have none of the glory. Like, it's something that we actually share with Jesus, right? Um, there's a very, um, I guess I'll even say, like, there's a, a very Epicurean kind of way of thinking about it, of like, yeah, like, if you live the Christian life, you're going to get a really good reward. Um, it's going to be something that's worth all of the suffering that you're going through. Um, and that's Paul's point, is if the resurrection doesn't happen, then 
you might as well not do it. You know, like for him, like the Stoics have it wrong. Just if the resurrection, a Stoic would say, if the resurrection is not true, you should still live um, like a good person. Um, and Paul's like, no, live like a bad person if the resurrection isn't true, because like um, tomorrow we're going to die anyway. Right. Like that's the whole point is um, for him. It's not about innate goodness. It's about getting a reward for things. I um, mean, that's an important point. I think that a lot of pastors, even in the evangelical movement have missed about Paul is that he's not just asking people to live a life of suffering because it's fun <laughs> or it's good or it's moral or it's because it's what Jesus did. And we should all just want to be like Jesus. Um, he's asking them to live a life of suffering because there's going to be a reward that comes at the end of it. The same way that there's a reward that comes at the end of Jesus's life of suffering, which is resurrection. But Paul will then go on to explain that, uh, it's not just the Holy spirit, um, working in resurrection in the future. And it's not just about a hope in the future, but it's also something that actually helps us in the present. And that's where we get into verse 26, where it says in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. So it's this idea, right? That the Holy spirit is both going to give us resurrection at the very end. And that's what we have hope in, but then also we can have the Holy Spirit work in our lives in our very weaknesses, and it actually helps us in our weaknesses. This is a really a big point to what I was saying in chapter 7 of this book about how um, without the Holy Spirit, we just get into this repetitive cycle of sin, and it's actually the Holy Spirit that is the person that helps us in our weaknesses. This is why I so often will say that if the Holy Spirit is not part of our discussion about overcoming sin, then we're really not having a great conversation, at least a Pauline discussion, about um, conquering sin. Um, if you make conquering sin all about accountability groups and community groups and all of that stuff, um, you're really missing a core part of what Paul is really trying to get at, which is that the Holy Spirit is actually the source of a lot of those um, uh, ways for you to overcome sin. And it happens very gradually. Um, it can also happen through communities and through accountability groups and through the Spirit working through other people. I totally grant that. But at the same time, we need to give credit where credit is due, and it is not with people or communities or individuals even, um, or even wills or um, just self-control. It's actually through the Holy Spirit itself who gives us that self-control. So that's very important to remember. Um, in this way, though, Paul focuses specifically on something that is really um, special that the Holy Spirit does. Um, in particular, he says that we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Um, this is one of the most interesting passages I've found in all of the book of Romans is that for Paul, he sees the Holy Spirit um, working in our lives, not just um, through helping us overcome sin, but also being an intercessor. And an intercessor is just a big word that means somebody that asks for forgiveness um, for sins. And so every time we sin as a Christian, the Holy Spirit is there groaning wordlessly um, and is actually um, giving intercession for our sins up to the throne of God. And remember, this is tied to Jesus. Hebrews will say this in a different way. Hebrews will say that Jesus is up in heaven, actually entering into the uh, temple that's up in heaven. Um, that's kind of a mirror temple of the um, Jerusalem temple. 
And as he enters into the temple, he becomes the high priest for all of us and makes sacrifices on our account um, and intercedes for our sins um, on our account. Um, Here, it's that same spirit of Jesus working, but in um, the viewpoint or the camera angle of our own personal lives and is uh, very much focused on um, the spirit living within us and the spirit having these wordless groans, these moans of a kind that have no words to them that um, the spirit gives up as a result of us sinning. Um, and it's really, really uh, endearing and also heartbreaking and heart-wrenching in some sense, but it's also exactly what we need as we continue on into the faith is the spirit to intercede for us as we continue to um, mess up from time to time. And this is something that I haven't really talked about um, all that often um, because Paul really hasn't brought it up yet until this point. Up until this point, Paul has been pretty strict with the Romans about how their way um, it could lead to a falling away from the faith. And so he's been really... Um, strict with them about the fact that there will be a final judgment, um, that there are things that they need to keep remaining within the salvation of Jesus Christ. And um, he is constantly telling them not to go back to their old ways of um, living according to the flesh. And a lot of a lot of his um, exhortations, at least, have a slant in which he sees um, Christians as on a very dangerous um, path. Uh, path that they could easily step off from either to the left or to the right. Think Pilgrim's Progress here. Um, Pilgrim's Progress is a great example of this, actually, of um, the journey of a Christian and there being so many different places that you can get lost on the way. And uh, I find it very interesting that the evangelical movement has no problem with um, Pilgrim's Progress because the entire book is kind of built around the premise that you can lose your salvation and that like um, you can get caught along the way and like the slough of despond and never make it to heaven and like uh, you know someone that um, is a hardcore evangelical could say Pilgrim's Progress is like the definition of um, kind of a Catholic reading in which you are <laughs> earning your salvation um, but like in a huge way, like that's not what John Bunyan was trying to communicate with that book. He was merely trying to communicate that, um, there are many pitfalls along the road to salvation. And just because you arrive at the mountain, um, of uh, redemption, I think it's called, where uh, the burden falls off your shoulders, um, does not mean that um, you don't get stuck along the way, and it does not mean that your journey um, ends in a positive way. Um, And so it's very, very important that um, he defend himself against Apollyon, that he gets through the valley of the shadow of death. There's plenty of different stories throughout that entire book of um, the potential pitfalls that a Christian can undergo. Um, And that's very much what Paul um, has been kind of getting at throughout the entirety of this book in Romans up until chapter 8. And chapter 8, we start to see a little bit of a shift where, because he begins to talk about the Spirit a lot more, this is the most prevalent, the Spirit comes up in the entirety of the book of Romans. Um, The Holy Spirit comes up for brief um, mentions every now and then, um, especially in like chapter 5 and chapter um, 6. But here we get to see uh, really where he sees the Holy Spirit falling, falling in his understanding of the gospel. And for him, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And 
because it's the spirit of Jesus, it's still working as Jesus works um, within us, offering forgiveness for sins. And because of that, um, there is a deep sense in Paul that um, there is forgiveness constantly being offered for us whenever we make a mistake. And it's not just this, um, uh, oh, I've sinned like five times, so that means I've gone back to the way of the flesh. And as a result of me going back to the way of the flesh, that means I'm on the path to death, right? Um, There is a sense in which if, and I I actually talked about this, I preached a sermon at Wayfarers once about this actually, um, that there is a deep sense in Paul's language in Romans 8 of um, once a Christian has uh, really fully believed and accepted the Holy Spirit within them, um, the Holy Spirit doesn't just work to transform their lives, but he also begins to um, make intercession for the sins that we commit up and to up and after that point. And because he begins to work in our lives this way, like it says, interceding with wordless groans, um, these kinds of one-off sins or even repeated sins that happen um, a few times in which we're constantly saying, ah, I wish I hadn't done that. And then we continue to take it to God and ask for forgiveness. Um, this kind of mentality is not the mentality of someone that's living according to the flesh. Um, that is someone that is living according to the spirit that's listening to the groans of the spirit even and understands the guilt that they have. And as a result, um, this is, um, something that will be forgiven because the spirit is there interceding for them. And so I don't want to paint this picture of Paul being someone that's like, Oh, if you just start repeatedly sinning, that's it. You're done. It's not as clear cut as that. Um, as a Christian, um, he has a very nuanced view of it when we get to Romans eight and the big important point here is he definitely doesn't want someone to just treat, um, sin as just something you can continually do, um, without any guilt. Um, but he also, understands that the Holy Spirit, when one sins, will offer forgiveness for that. And so it's a very nuanced perspective in which he's hoping that these Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians will understand that um, there are some sins that Jews are saying are sins that are not really sins, and so that they need to consider those and really understand that the law itself is actually something that can lead a person to death, and so those things shouldn't be considered sins in the first place. Secondly, there are some sins that the Gentiles really just don't care about and want to continue doing, and those sins Paul really wants them to consider and wants them to make sure that they're not doing those things. And so with those two um, uh, different perspectives, um, he is really seeking to unite them under this concept of Christ and under Christ's way of suffering in which they have to put off their old selves and die to them themselves. But at the same time, he recognizes that dying to self is a process. It's not a one-off thing that just happens one moment. Um, it is a repeated action that happens daily and that there will be mistakes along that path. And the Holy Spirit is here for those times when we struggle with that. And when um, we struggle with that, we see that the Holy Spirit is actually groaning, interceding for us with those groans. He then, the Holy Spirit, um, 
uh, is called He Who Searches Our Hearts Knows the Mind of the Spirit. This is, uh, sorry, uh, this is God. God who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So the idea here, and this is really interesting of a verse, is that God, the one that searches hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit is the one that is so closely related to our own hearts um, that he understands why the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. This idea here is that um, because he understands that our hearts are truly wanting to follow after him, that they're not just attempting to cheat the system of as you will but are attempting earnestly to follow after him and are just making mistakes Um, this kind of person he understands the heart and because he understands the heart he knows um, that the spirit is right in interceding for us he knows that the holy spirit is correct when the holy spirit searches our hearts and sees the genuineness of our earnestness right and because the Holy Spirit then intercedes for us, um, it's something that pleases God, and it's something that he actually says is in accordance with the will of God even. So this is something that like God sees as a very integral part of how we are to be glorified eventually, is that the Spirit then is this helper, this advocate, is the word that will be used in John, which I really like that term. Um, up there, There's a way that... Um, Judaism uh, really depicted God versus humans in a way that I really have always uh, latched onto because C.S. Lewis really used the same way of thinking about it when he portrays um, Aslan versus the White Witch and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that's that God is not the accuser of man's sins. It's actually Satan that's the accuser. That's actually one of the names that... um, the Satan actually means is the accuser. Um, and because he's called the accuser, we need someone that um, advocates for us, that that defends us, right, from Satan and from his accusations. Um, the way to think about this is that God is actually the judge and that Satan is the um, prosecutor and we need a lawyer. Um, and the idea is the lawyer um, or the advocate is the Holy Spirit. Um, this, this person that's coming along advocating for our situation and for our genuineness of our hearts. Um, and that's something that's really integral. So it's not just that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's a huge important part of it. That That's a nail in the coffin as far as Satan's accusations go. Um, but there is always that dangling question of what about the sins that happen after you are a Christian, right? What about those times that you mess up after you become a Christian? Um, and that's always been a big question for a lot of qu- Christians even is like, does God forgive those sins or did he, you know, how, how does the cross matter to my future sins way down the road? Like, you know, shouldn't I be better than this? And like all these kinds of questions, right? And there are some Christian denominations actually do preach that um, uh, you will get so um, saintly that eventually you no longer will sin anymore. And then there are other 
uh, Christian denominations that preach that uh, you'll never achieve that as a Christian and that you will always sin every day of your life. Um, and some denominations fall right in the middle of that. And I will leave that as an open hanging question. I'm not even really going to try and tackle that question. Um, that's split a lot of denominations over the years. And I find it to be something that Paul even isn't really concerned about. One of the things Paul is concerned about is what happens if you do sin after you're a Christian. And one of the main things he focuses in on is the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is this person that searches our hearts and knows how much we are genuine and earnest in our attempts to follow after Christ. And because of that, when God searches our hearts, he then knows the mind of the Spirit. He knows why the Spirit is advocating for us, because he sees it too. And he sees our genuineness too. And as a result, um, then the intercessions of the Holy Spirit look good to God, and he understands that it's for his own people. Um, This is a really important moment here, too, because God's people up until this point would have been the people of Israel, and now Paul is redefining who God's people are in this line. He's defining God's people now and the Holy Spirit interceding for them as... um, the people that believe in Jesus Christ and believe in the Messiah. That's very, very big and also very um, uh, affrontery to a Jew in some ways because up until this point, it wasn't the Holy Spirit that advocated for um, uh, Jews. Um, Instead, it was um, their faithfulness to God through their long history of suffering. Um, There's several psalms, actually, that talk about um, Israel suffering under persecution for God, and it's their faithfulness in their sufferings that then leads to God eventually going to um, bring about um, salvation to them through a Messiah, through a Messiah that would come and conquer all their people and bring about um, the new Jerusalem. That was their hope. Right. So for Paul, Paul is redefining that Jewish hope in the Messiah coming and um, as a result of Israel's faithfulness and saying, no, actually, you've never been faithful. Um, You've never been faithful from the very beginning and you're still not faithful today. A message that was really hard for their time to hear. That's the message of Jesus in a huge way in all the gospel narratives is that the Israelites were are still not faithful, even though they, th- they think they are. And on top of that, um, they need an advocate like the Holy Spirit to come and wordlessly groan for all of the times that they mess up as followers of him. And when that happens, then they are God's people, and that will then bring about the will of God um, making them righteous, Um, which is a really big, important point to how Paul is establishing these two groups, both Gentiles and Jews, under the story of Israel in a new way, where God's people now are no longer an ethnic um, Israel, but are now all united under the Holy Spirit indwelling them and under the way of Jesus. And God's people now become um, uh, Christians as opposed to Israel. That's a big important point, and that's something that's going to raise a lot of questions. And so Paul already kind of assumes that when he brings up this phrase, God's people, um, he knows what's coming. He knows that 
there are going to be some Jews that have problems with him calling everybody in Rome God's people. And as a result, um, he decides to explain that in the next verse. And so in uh, verse 28, he says, And we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him. Um, it's interesting that he says for the good of those who love him, because up until this point, um, uh, this would for a Jew have been all things work together for the good of those who are faithful to Torah. Right. Um, and a part of who love him is part of Torah, right? Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he's not saying anything too far out of Judaism right here, um, that all things are going to work out for those who love him. That's very much in a, a Deuteronomy, um, message there. Um, and, He's going to go a step further and say who have been called according to his purpose. Once again, we're still kind of in Deuteronomy here. Um, This is, you know, you would imagine that um, he's talking about the Jews here um, because this is exactly what Deuteronomy says. A lot of people don't realize that Romans 28 is really just kind of summing up Deuteronomy in a nutshell. Um, Deuteronomy basically says that if you do good— and if you love God, um, then uh, you're going to have good things happen to you. And so that's essentially the summation of Romans 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, right? And who have been called according to his purpose. Remember, Abraham was the first person to be called, um, and he was called to be a light to all the nations. That is his big, big task, is to be a light to all the nations. And that is what the Israelites were supposed to be. But now, Paul has just redefined who God's people are in verse 27. So, now he's saying that it's this people that have been called, this people, both a Jewish and a Gentile people in Rome, that have the Holy Spirit within them, that are now this ethnic people that have been called according to his purpose, which is... um, Again, something that a Jew is going to have a problem with, um, because up until that point, this was only a Jewish thing, and now it's both a Jewish and a Gentile thing. This is why he brings this up, right? Um, His point here is to really unify both a Jew and a Gentile story under the Holy Spirit's power, really, and to show that it's now the Holy Spirit being an advocate over both a Jew and a Gentile that shows that they are now the new Israel, in a sense. Um, They are... Israel reworked in a huge way. As a result, um, he then says, after um, saying the line, those who have been called according to his purpose, reminding us all of Abraham, he then decides to describe the entire process, starting with Abraham, starting with Adam, and then working all the way through to the very end of the story of Christianity, right? So he says, for those God foreknew, He also predestined. Um, This is something that he'll bring up in Romans chapter 9. We'll get into that a little bit, is that God foreknows um, the decisions of people. He foreknows um, how people um, are, and he predestines people to be conformed to the image of his son. This is something that has, (laughs) uh, in many ways, created so much conversation about because, um, uh, if you're like me, you uh, 
are very familiar with a group of Christians that call themselves Calvinists, who um, in a huge way were influenced by John Calvin, a reformer in the 16th century. And uh, they latch on to verses like this, and they see um, God foreknowing people, um, before people ever did anything right from wrong, but because of his foreknowledge, he understood people's right decisions and his wrong and their wrong decisions. And as a result of that, he decided or predetermined um, these people um, where they would end up, whether they would end up in heaven or where they would end up in hell. Um, and that um, it's really a selective feature of God is that he chooses some to go to heaven and the others are left to go to hell. Um, you'll notice that that's not really the context of this verse, however, and what he's talking about. The whole context of this entire passage is that uh, is of suffering and is of people um, that he sees as Christians undergoing a lot of suffering and living the way of Jesus and having the Holy Spirit within them and being united under the Jewish idea of election. And I haven't talked about election all that often because election has been a topic that people debate over and over and over again. And it feels like you, um, in many ways, often get labeled certain things because um, you didn't say a correct sentence the right way that someone wanted you to say it. Um, and as a result of a lot of those kinds of discussions, it just feels like a lot of he said, she said arguments, and uh, it doesn't feel like anybody really wants to gain ground in those discussions and honestly even wants to change their opinions on those those discussions. And I've found that it's been the source of a lot of um uh, disagreements that uh, I feel like in a lot of ways even like um, uh, I guess excite a person's own ego of sorts um, and can be very very um, uh, uh, affrontary to someone that's a new Christian that's still trying to learn and can actually lead them astray and I wish um, people would understand that uh, doctrines like this oftentimes uh, need to have some of a Romans 14 kind of understanding of the strong versus the weak kind of thing. And we need to be very careful about how we talk about these things around new Christians or even non-Christians and just really having a sense for respect when it comes to these kinds of topics um, in a way that's um, conducive to healthy arguments or healthy discussions, but not necessarily being so... Um, uh, I guess I'll just say gung-ho about many of these different perspectives. But um, you're here for an explanation of verses like this, and uh, I do want to do this verse justice in a way. So let's go ahead and talk about it a little bit, and I want to set up a few things at the very beginning. Um, it's very important to recognize the distinction between um, predestination being to a um, destination and predestin to a um, uh, pre-designed identity or action. And what I mean by that is uh, for a very long time, people have inter interpreted this word um, predestined to mean that um, you are destined to a destination, right? Um, destination is the word where destined comes from, right? And so many people have used the word predestined to um, indicate that this word is trying to convey some kind of uh, destiny for um, people and that God's destining them for a specific area, right? Um, so 
Um, the problem I have with that is the line that comes right after it, which is not actually a destiny, but is actually an identity that they're to be predestined for. He says he's to predestine them to be conformed to the image of his son. So he's not predestining them to heaven or to hell. He's predestining them to be um, actually to have a verb happen upon them in which they become the image of Jesus, which tracks a lot more with what everything else that was coming before it. Um, this is not this is not saying that he's pre-designing people in their final outcome of life. What he's predestining is he predetermined that if you have the Holy Spirit within you, you are going to become pre. Uh, you are going to be conformed. Conformed is just a fancy word that means changed. You're going to be changed into the image of his son. Um, and so the idea here is before we had any actions that we did, he decided to predestine the people that he was going to select, the people that he foreknew, um, to be conformed to that image of his son. Right. And the way he does that is through the Holy Spirit. Right. We have the Holy Spirit within us that's slowly changing us to be more like him. And so we're becoming the image of his son. So we're not being predestined to heaven or hell. We're being predestined to the image of his son. That's what he's getting at right uh, right here. That's a very different um, line than what many Calvinists will argue. And it's something that I wish <laughs> I honestly wish uh they were more honest about that phrase as where the predestined comes from. Um, and as a result, I do believe that there is some sense in which God foreknows um, the people that he is calling. And I don't shy away from that fact. This is where I do sound a little bit like a Calvinist, um, is that I do believe that there is some foreknowing of who he's calling. In the same way that he called Abraham, I think he calls us, right? Um, I think that there is some mystical component. This is where the Catholic mystics have actually really helped me in this, is that there's some unknown concept of God's calling on people um, that makes them become conformed to the image of his son. I don't know how that works out. Like it, I don't think it's selective the way that people make it out to be. Um, but I do think that there is a foreknowing, you know, like I, I think that there is um, uh, a sense in which all of those who are foreknown, um, he then decides that they're all going to become conformed to the image of his son. I don't think he's picking out specific people. I think he's foreknowing a group of people the same way that he foreknew that Abraham would have descendants and descendants and descendants, right? He selected one person, Abraham, to be the representative of all of them, right? And so it's this it's the same idea of the call of Abraham where God foreknows that Abraham is going to have multiple descendants. And so he then predestines all of them, all of the, the descendants of Abraham to be conformed to the image of um I guess I should say the uh, Israelite story, right? Um, the, the, the way that they lived the Israelite story. I, it's the same thing here. Um, now God is selecting um, one person, Jesus, and from Jesus as the new Abraham figure, um, the outpouring of that then predestines all of us to be conformed to his image, right? And that's the idea here is that uh, God foreknows all of the people, 
um, that are going to be underneath the banner of Jesus, and then he predestines them. He decides before the beginning of the world that they are all going to be conformed to the same image as Jesus. They're all going to live the same way as Jesus. They're all going to look the same as Jesus. They're all going to have his same image, right? So here's it's, here's the thing he's predestining. He's not predestining the... Um, destination he's predestining the way to that destination and that's a very big distinction um predestining the way that we walk or the image that we show to other people um is very different than predestining our end destination just keep that in mind right that he might be being jesus he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So notice what Paul's getting at here. Who is the main subject of this sentence? Is it us? Is it the idea that we're predestined to go somewhere and we're the subject of the sentence? No, we're not. The idea is that Jesus is the subject of the sentence. And he's saying that we are predestined to be following in the image of Jesus. And he and the whole reason for us being predestined to be conformed to his image is so that he can be obviously shown as the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, right? Which is fitting exactly with what he said before, is that when we eventually die and are resurrected, um, we are um, now co-heirs with Jesus. And so the idea here is, of course, God is going to foreknow all of the people that are going to become Christians, and he's going to predestine all of them through the Holy Spirit to become conformed to that very same image. And because he's going to predestine them to be conformed to that very same image, they're going to be little Christs walking around for the next however long we do this, so far 2,000 years. And that shows that Jesus was the very first born among all the brothers and sisters of Christians that have come because we all look like him, right? And because we all look like him, we uh, it's far more easier to see that he was the original for- first one. And that was God's plan from the very beginning of time and even before time um, is something that God had in mind. He's also doing this to link this with the idea of Judaism and election, because for the Jews, um, they believed that Abraham was elected and that they as a people were predestined to be the people of God. And they were predestined to be the people of God that would be this light that was shining on a hill, shining out their light to the Gentiles. And through their interaction with the Gentiles, the Gentiles might become Jews and then become saved. That was their way of thinking. Paul is using that way of thinking and showing the flaws in it, but also using several parts of that and saying, That's not entirely inaccurate about what Jesus is doing. Jesus comes and he then sets himself up as the thing that we all then will become. And because of that, Paul sees way back in the very past and before the time began that God had a plan for that from the very beginning, that Jesus became a human that we can all look up to and then become conformed to his image. And Paul sees that God foreknew that all of us would want to be Christians, that we would begin to become Christians, and he foreknew those people. He called those people according to his purpose, and then he 
predestined all of us to be conformed to that image, right? He predestined the way that we would live. This is why, again, um, I love the name Wayfarers for the church that I attend, um, because at the very heart of Paul, even, is this is what is being predestined, is the way. The image of his son is the way or the vocation that we live. It's not the destination, it's the vocation. And it's a very big, important distinction that uh, needs to be made when we're talking about these verses. Okay, hopefully that makes sense. Verse 30, and those he predestined, again, we talked about predestined, it's not about being predestined to heaven or hell, it's being predestined to be conformed to his image. Um, He also called. So notice that this goes for no. He foreknew, then he predestined, and now, then, after he predestines what way they're going to walk, then he calls them. And this is why I was saying you can't get around the fact that he does call people. How that works out, I don't really know. Like, it's a mystical thing to ask, like, how God calls people, um, why God called Noah, or why God called Abraham, like, is just a a useless question, in my opinion. God's going to call who he's going to call. You know, that's, that's just part of how he works. Um, and it's not not calling them to salvation. It's calling them to a way of life that they then have to remain within, right? This is the same type of calling that the Israelites are getting called into. They were called to be a light to the nations. The same principle here. They're not being called to to go to heaven, they're being called to be conformed to the image of his son. So they're being called to be in the faith, and then it's their responsibility to remain within the faith, which tracks with everything he's been saying in the whole of um, uh, Romans up until this point, right? So he calls them, and he calls them to this goal. Then those he called, he also justified. Right. So at that point, we're talking about Romans one through four. Right. He's taken the whole concept of justification, this concept we talked about being made right, being put in right relationship with God. And those people that he called, he also justified. Um, Remember, again, that this is, again, the Jewish story from the very beginning. Um, The Jews were called, Abraham was called first, and then he was justified. Um, And he was justified because he believed in God, not because he followed the law, right? And this is the same thing that's going on here, is he sees that Christians have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, image of his son. So then he calls them, right? So this would be a Gentile that hears um, Paul preach about the good news. And that's the what he sees as the Gentile getting called for the first time, how that works out with God and all that. That's a question I don't think theologians will ever answer, but they're called in that way, right? God calls them in that moment and they respond to the gospel. At that moment, they and when they believe, their faith is credited to them as righteousness and they are justified, right? Um, once they are justified, he also glorified, right? This is the part that we're waiting for in the future, um, but is also something that's slowly happening in our lives right now, is that glory is starting to come and shine in our lives, but it's also something that we're waiting for to become co-heirs with Christ. So that's the summation of all of those lines. That wasn't as hard, I hope, as many people have tried to make it. Um, 
Again, some people may disagree with how I'm interpreting that. That's totally fine. This is one of the most contentious verses in all of Romans. Um, but I really do think it's a very simple verse when you really think about it and when you think about all that Paul's getting at. And remember, why is he bringing all this up? He's trying to unify the story of the Jews with the story of Christianity and show that the story of the Jews is the very same story as the story of Christianity and that a Jew just needs to get rid of one of the things that's been holding them back the whole time, which is the law. Um, but they can keep everything else. They can keep the fact that Abraham called was called, that he was predestined to live the life that shined to the Gentiles, that he was predestined to do that, that he was then justified because he believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and that because of his faith, God glorified him, right? All of that's in the story of Abraham. That's nothing, nothing there is new, right? It's the same thing with Christianity, and that's the point, is Paul sees the story of how the Holy Spirit works in our lives and how he interacts in our lives as a guarantee for how God is going to conform us to the image of his son, how he's going to be there giving wordless groans and helping us conform to the image of his son. And that is going to be our hopeful guarantee towards um, the very end as long as we continue to press on towards that goal. And so he just lays out the entire plan from beginning to end. A Jew would understand it as the story of Abraham and a Gentile understands it as the story of Christ. And Paul wants to say the story of Abraham is the story of Christ. And that's the whole point of what he's getting at here is the Holy Spirit makes that entire plan work finally and makes it work in a way through Jesus and how Jesus then becomes the answer to the problem of the law. All right. Hopefully that that's a lot like you could go into so much more with that. I'm only going to do like a casual kind of walkthrough of that, honestly, because like I said, people will always pick out specific Greek verbs and always kind of make debates and arguments about different things. But I think just on a very surface level reading of this text, I don't think that this is indicating anything about salvation. I think this is indicating, um, at least when it comes to the predestined part, um, but is far more focused on the path of a Christian from beginning to end, mapping onto the path of Abraham and a Jew and showing that those two stories are one and the same when it comes to how God works in their lives and how Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the catalysts for the new way of Judaism to be lived in this uh, Christian walk. Hopefully that makes a lot of sense. Uh, if it doesn't, um, I... Uh, We'll always encourage you to send me emails or talk to me if you go to Wayfarers. Um, I can always talk about that kind of stuff um, as much. Just recognize that this is one person's opinion, and there are multiple opinions on that passage. And don't just take my opinion. Um, read several different other opinions. See what um, makes the most sense to you. Um, but to me, that's that's where I that's where I go with those that passage. And I hope it's a fair reading. I hope I didn't try and explain away any part of that. I hope I was as true as I could be to those verses. And um, it felt true. Anyway, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So the conclusion he draws from all of what he was said above is that God is in a huge way interacting with Christians in a way that makes him totally 
um, on the side of humans because he gives the Holy Spirit, right? And this Holy Spirit is making this whole entire process from predestination, being conformed to his image, um, from being called. I think the Holy Spirit kind of plays a role in being in having us all being called, um, him also justifying us, like all of these different things is stuff that God is doing on our behalf, right? And while we do have to play our own part in that dance, so to speak, um, God is doing way much far more beyond what what we would think um, in that whole story. And remember, uh, when when I talk about this um, from like the Genesis and Abraham perspective, remember when God made a covenant with Abraham, he didn't have Abraham walk through the split animals. Um, God actually made the covenant with himself while Abraham was sleeping and dreaming. So just keep that in mind that that's also part of the Judaism story is that it's really God that's doing all of this for us and being faithful to us when we can't be faithful to him. In verse 32, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So he's saying if God like was willing to give up his own son for all of humanity, right? How would he not also like give us all things once everything's said and done, right? This is where he's really talking about that last thing of us being glorified and what glorified is going to mean after we go through all this suffering. And he's saying like, if God gave his son, the firstborn, the first fruits of everything up so that we could be justified to him, how like how much more now is he after we die and are resurrected going to give us all the things that are going to make us inherit everything, right? That are going to make us co-heirs with Jesus, that are going to make us kings and queens. This is what I love about the ending of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is that after everything's said and done, uh, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy don't just go back to their own home. They become kings and queens over Narnia, and they reign for years and years and years. And that's really the idea here, is that they're going to become co-heirs with Christ and become kings and queens. And that's the big thing here, is Paul sees that if at the very end, if God gave his own son at the beginning of all of this, like, is he not going to give us all things at the very end, right? You know, because he loves us so much. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? So here he, again, he's going back to the idea of now it's not Israelites that are God's chosen people. It is um, anybody that believes in Jesus that follows Abraham's belief, the faith of Abraham. Um, and he asks, who now can accuse them, right? What, what Satan can come around and say anything about those people if God has already done so much for us, right? It's God's on our side is really what he's getting at there. Um, and God has justified us, he says, right? So like, who can say anything against us? Who then is the one who condemns, he asks? No one, right? Like the idea here is that um, there is, in a sense, no condemnation. This is That's what he says at the very beginning of this chapter. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So this idea here is that like in a huge way, um, all of the um, uh, struggle that we're going through, all of the sufferings that we're going through, all of the things that the Spirit has to wordlessly groan for 
at the very end of the day, if we keep within Christ Jesus, if we remain in Christ Jesus, notice at the very beginning he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say anything about those that are out of Christ Jesus. But if we remain in Christ Jesus, then there is nobody that can condemn us. doesn't matter how many times we've sinned. doesn't matter any of those kinds of things. We are completely guiltless now um, because God is on our side. Um, we have the Holy Spirit advocating for us. We have this predestined to become conformed to his image going on. We have um, the idea of us being uh, justified on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. Um, all of these things are beginning to work on us and work in us and work basically outside of ourselves into the very throne room of God and become something that says time and time again, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, right? He says, no one, Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So there's that word interceding again. And remember first it was the Holy Spirit interceding for us and that was within us. Now we get to see really what he was talking about. And that is that Jesus is now up at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So he's also on our side. He's also making petitions to God and saying, I know that Christian just did that. And that was the worst thing that Christian could have done, but I know his heart. I know her heart and I know that that's okay. And that's what he's doing. As long as you remain in Christ, as long as you are remaining in Christ. And remember, you can still choose the flesh and fall out of being in Christ. I'm not saying you can't do that. There's still that possibility, and that's something he warns about in all the chapters up until that point. But if you are in Christ, you have all of this on your side. And it's very easy to be in Christ he says that, actually. This is how he says it. He says in um, the Gospels that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Um, that's something that I feel like a lot of Christians don't relate to, and it's something that I was struggling with quite a bit earlier on this year, um, was that verse, because it never really felt like that. But the more and more I've meditated on it and the more and more I thought about it, the more and more I'm convinced, actually, that it is very easy to remain within Jesus. Um, it's very hard to follow him. Um, the way is very difficult. It's a very narrow way. But it's very easy to be with Jesus, in Jesus. It's very easy to just trust in him and have hope in him. And that, at the end of the day, I think is the part that matters the most. As long as your heart is set on that, as long as your heart is set on following after Jesus and attempting in some way to follow his way, it doesn't matter if that actually ends in success. Um, at the end of the day, it's the intention and the heart underneath it that's the important thing. And whether or not that's a success story or a failure story does not really matter. And what matters is the intention of the heart in those decisions. And if your intention was to follow after God and not follow your own flesh, then you're, you're good. You're good, in my opinion. Um, and that's, that's, that's really what it boils down to for me, is the heart, because that's what he says, right? He says that um, he knows the heart, and he knows what the heart is setting its mind on. Um, and he understands that those intercessions that the Holy Spirit's making and that Jesus is going to make for us 
are going to be true because they know our heart better than even we may know our own heart. And they know that our heart is oftentimes not doing things out of the flesh, but is doing things because we really love God and really want to show that we love God. I think that's a really important point to really remember whenever we're in really troublesome times when it comes to dealing with our own sins. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? Notice here he's focusing on a lot of the potential things that could cause a Christian to doubt God, to feel like there is no God, that could cause them to um, see God as not really showing up, or even just the idea of threats of these things coming in and making our bodies um, uh, feel such a pain in our lives, feeling um, hunger or feeling um, cold from being naked or feeling danger for being unsafe, right? All these different things have the potential of coming upon us, and um, they have the potential of uh, being things that uh, someone might say could separate us from the love of Jesus. But Paul is saying none of those things will separate us from the love of Jesus. doesn't matter. Um, you know, all of these things are things that um, all will probably happen to a Christian, but none of them will ever separate them from the love of Jesus, for Jesus loves them no matter what they're going through. Um, and that's really what he's trying to tell this Roman church that's suffering so much, right? Um, they're predestined to become like Jesus, so they're going to become like him in this kind of way in which he loves his people just as much as um, they should love each other. And that's really what's at the heart of all of this for Paul, is that None of these things should really matter to this people because they should have a love for one another and they should have a love, feel the love of Christ on them. He then quotes a verse from Psalm 44, which is one of the most interesting and powerful psalms I've read recently. It talks about how um, the Israelite people, it's, a, it's from the voice of an Israelite that looks at the Israelite people and recognizes that the Israelite people are flawed, that they've messed up in a huge way. But he sees himself, the writer of Psalm 44 sees himself as a remnant. He sees himself as someone that's been faithful to God, even though his own people have gone astray and have not actually done what they were supposed to do and not actually followed God. He and his little band of people have followed God all their life, and yet they are getting just as much punishment for everything going on as everyone else is, and they're enduring the punishments um, that God brings about on the people of Judah and Israel just as much as the wicked people are. And so he writes this psalm in which he's really asking God for mercy for things that he feels like he's being punished unjustly for because he didn't do anything wrong. He actually was following God the whole time. And so he says this line here as kind of a plea to God to show how much suffering they've been going through in this psalm. He says, For your sake we face death all day long, and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. His idea here is that like, because we're a remnant, we're alienated from our own people, and we're also really, really afraid of death from the outside world and what they may bring for war, famines, and all kinds of things, right? And so as a result, Paul quotes this line here 
as a reference to now the story of Christians and how now for the sake of Christ, Christians are going to now face death all day long, and they're going to be considered a sheep to the slaughter. That's something that also Jesus himself was considered. In Isaiah 53, it prophesies that Jesus was like a lamb led to the shearer to be slaughtered, right? This idea is that um, once again, we're being predestined to live the same life that Jesus lived. And it's really important to remember that is that that's something that God predestined every Christian to follow is the life of Christ. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So the idea here is he actually sees us, the ones that are the ones being led to the slaughter as the conquerors. And this is the exact same thing that happens with Jesus on the cross, is when he is led to the cross, he conquers all of sin and death when he dies on the cross. Same here. We're being led as sheep to the slaughter through our own sufferings in our own life. And as a result, we become conquerors through Jesus who loved us. And remember, we're never separated from God's love or Jesus's love through that whole period of suffering. We're always close to him in that. Again, he's not focused on salvation here. What is he focused on? He's focused on the fact that um, you can't be separated from his love, from the love that he's pouring out on us as we're undergoing suffering. This whole passage isn't about all of like salvation and where we're going to end up in our final destination. This passage is very primarily focused on how to endure suffering well and what Paul sees as the Holy Spirit and the fact that the Holy Spirit is within us, how the Holy Spirit helps us and works in us to endure suffering and what our whole story is as Christians and what God calls us to live like as a Christian in the way of suffering and how that maps onto the story of Jesus. That's really why all of this is here. This is why he's saying, like, even through all this, we're never separated from the love of Christ, because he knows that's hard words to hear. And he also knows that Jews listening to this are going to be really irate, because up until this point, they believed they were predestined to live like Jews on Mount Zion, on a hill shining on Jerusalem, right? And now it's something different. Now we're being predestined to live according to Jesus's life, not live like a light on a hill, right? Like a city on a hill. So here's the interesting thing. He then says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here's the really powerful conclusion he gives is we're undergoing so much suffering in the Roman church, and yet he doesn't believe that anything will ever separate any of these people from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, because he knows that God is always going to love them and he's always on their side and they have no condemnation because he, they are all in Christ Jesus and they have the Holy Spirit advocating, conforming them to the image of his son and the love that God had for his own son is now the very same love that he has for us because his own son's spirit is in us. And so that all of that is like coming together for Paul in this beautiful way in which we now get to look at and see the power of God working in our own very lives, a power that was predestined before the very beginning of the world and is now just a part of our daily walks with Jesus and becoming conformed to his own image. That's Romans 8. 
and I believe it's the most powerful chapter in the entirety of the book of Romans for that very reason. That's how he sees us all being glorified. Um, that's the end goal, is to become so conformed to Jesus' own image that you can't even really tell the difference between Jesus and us anymore, right? That's the point. And I think that's something that he sees as as we get more and more like Jesus, more and more conformed to his image, we become more and more filled with love and more and more able to uh, to discern Jesus's love for us. And it becomes a far more powerful and important part of our lives as we recognize it more and more deeply and develop that relationship even further and further. This has been a great episode to work through. I know this one was long, just like the last one was long, but it was worth going through for this very sake of just showing just the richness of this chapter. This next one, um, this is going to be a fun one. Um, there's going to be a lot of people that uh, may have comments about the next chapter as we go through it. I'm thankful that that's two weeks away. Um, I'm I'm been enjoying the series so much, and thank you guys for being. Uh, so willing to tune in every episode. And I encourage you to go on and to read Galatians, to read this chapter over and over. Um, maybe make this chapter one of the chapters that you memorize in your daily life because it's one of the most important chapters for all of Christianity, in my opinion. Um, and it's something that really matters to our entire walk as a Christian. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening as always. And I'll be back in your feed again next week to talk about Deuteronomy and all of the fun that we have with blessings and curses that are to come in the book of Deuteronomy. Thanks guys so much. Bye.